Holy Spirit, we ask that you would be here and help us to understand and apply the words from Scripture to our lives. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I recently read a story about a female flight attendant who was being harassed by a drunk guy on one of her flights. And he kept trying to get her to agree to uh, spend the night with him in his apartment after they landed. So she finally got away from him and went to the back of the plane where she encountered another man who was trying to get her to spend the night with him at his apartment after they landed. So she was having a really bad day, one in the front, one in the back. Well, as they were about to land, the, the guy in the front grabbed her and he said, hey, I've got an extra key to my apartment. And so he gave her a key to his apartment along with directions to his apartment. So she took it went to the back of the plane, gave it to the man in the back of the plane, and said, now don't be late. <laughs> so now those two guys were going to have a really bad day. Do you ever feel like that flight attendant, that you are just being harassed by all kinds of things, problems, hassles, all kinds of issues in your life? Or maybe you feel a little bit like your life is sort of like this. Everything's going along just fine. And then all of a sudden, oh, yours is the house that catches on fire, right? Everyone else is doing just great, but yours is the house in the neighborhood that's on fire. Well, as you know, this year we are doing a lot of different sermon series, and we are doing them chronologically through Scripture so that we can get to know Scripture. And today we're starting a new series called, And You Think You've Got Problems where we'll be looking at the lives of the founding fathers of the nation of Israel. Now, the first 11 chapters of Genesis are really kind of the prologue. They're kind of the background information that you need to know. Think of the first 11 chapters of Genesis as kind of the voiceover at the beginning of the movie. And they use highly symbolic storytelling to set the stage. But the real history starts in Genesis chapter 12, where God narrows his salvation plan down to one man, Abraham, and his descendants who become the nation of Israel to carry his message of love all around the world. And the reason God does this with just one person is because he wants to work relationally through people. But as I said several weeks ago, he certainly didn't choose Abraham and his descendants because they were the best people with the best track record, right? They commit rape incest, attempted fratricide, they're a mesh, codependent, neurotic, these people would freak out Jerry Springer. <laughs> so if you think you've got problems, you're going to love this sermon series because by the time it's over, you're going to feel a lot better about your life. And today I want to look at the guy who started it all. His name is Abraham, and he had a lot of problems. But he managed to rise above those problems and thrive and find God's blessings even in spite of all the problems. I remember once during a stressful period in my life, a friend asking me, how are you doing? And I replied, oh, fine, under the circumstances. And he said, well, what are you doing under there? <laughs> so what problems do you feel under right now? Financial, health, relationship? We're going to spend the next couple of weeks talking about how we can rise above those problems and thrive. Starting with Abraham. And the first thing he shows us about how we can rise above our problems is that we have to act on God's promises. The text says, The Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your people to the land that I will show you. To the land that I will show you? I absolutely would have asked for more details. Right? Like, is it a good land? Where is it? Are we there yet? Right? 
And I always imagine there had to be more to this conversation, right? I mean, Abraham might have said something like, let me get this straight. You want me to leave everything I've got and go someplace, and you're not even going to tell me where it is. And God would say, uh-huh. And Abraham might have said, now how am I supposed to tell my wife that? God would say, that's your problem, right? But Abraham goes, and he has this great adventure as a result. I don't know about you, but so often I want all the data before I te- take the step of faith, right? We do that as people. We say things like, okay, Lord, if, if I give 10% of my income to your work, like you say, well, what's going to happen? Lord, if I obey your commands, what's going to happen? And God says, you'll be blessed. And I say, well, could we define blessed? Right? I'd like an itemized list. itemized list. Exactly what's this blessing going to look like? And God says, take the step, and then you'll see. The only way you're going to know if God's promises are real is if you act on them. And test them out and see that they're real. We've got to act on God's promises. Second way that Abraham shows us how to rise above our problems and thrive is that we have to get real. We will have problems. The text says Abraham leaves, and then the text says now there was a famine in the land. Okay, that's a fine howdy-do, right? Here Abraham was living in Ur, the richest city of the time, and he does what God tells him. He leaves, and he ends up in a family. I don't know about you. I'd have filed a complaint. Okay, not the blessing I expected. God, you promised I'd be blessed, and this isn't what I wanted. You see, whenever I face difficulty, there's just something in me that thinks I've been ripped off, right? Like my first instinct when something goes wrong is to think, well, if God loved me, if God was with me, well, then why did this happen? And my squeal point is embarrassingly low. Like, it does not take much to get me to my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? <laughs> and it's interesting to me, it's in the developing world, as I've traveled there, folks in the developing world where there's all that poverty and suffering, they don't do that. They don't expect a problem-free life. But there's something in me, and I think it's American culture, that it just expects a problem-free life. And if I have a problem, that must mean God's not with me. Now, I know in my head that's not right, but in my heart, I feel like God owes me this problem-free existence. I just read an article about how experts are worried that uh, teenagers are texting too much, and they're worried that they're going to get thumb pain. No lie. We are a culture that worries about thumb pain. Okay, that's just embarrassing, right? But what if our trials aren't the opposite of God's blessing? What if our trials... God can use them, doesn't necessarily cause them, but what if God can use our trials to pull blessings out of them? You see, God's not into making us happy. God is not into making us happy. He's into making us holy and whole because wholeness leads to joy, and joy, unlike happiness, which depends on our circumstances, can never be taken away. If I'm going to wait for my circumstances to be just right, to live with confidence and victory and joy, I'm going to be waiting a long time, right? But what if God uses our suffering to help us find a joy that does not depend on circumstances? I read about a man named David who grew up in a great family. And at 32, he was this great, big, huge, athletic guy until he got cancer. And eventually wasted down to 80 pounds. And as he lay dying in his hospital bed, he said to his dad, Dad, do you remember when I was a little boy how you used to just hold my head close to your chest? And his dad would say, "Uh uh-huh. And David said, could you do that again for me now? So his father sat on the bed and he held his son's head against his chest. And David said, Dad, I want to thank you for building the kind of character into my life 
that I can go through even a moment like this with trust in God and joy. Okay, when you can say that in a moment like that and mean it, you are invincible. Nothing can get you down. Nothing can beat you because your joy does not depend on fickle circumstances. It comes from Jesus who lives inside of you and fills you with his Holy Spirit who pushes back on everything that pushes so hard on you. And when you feel his love and his power inside of you, then nothing can defeat you. Not your circumstances, not your pain, not your suffering, not the devil from hell himself because your joy depends on Jesus and Jesus never fails. You see, you can't have a testimony until you have a test. But when circumstances test us, Jesus gives us the joy that rises above our circumstances. I recently read that when they first manufactured golf balls, they did so with smooth covers, but then they noticed that the golf balls would go farther once they'd been roughed up a little bit. So that's when they started making the golf balls with dimpled covers. Now mine don't go anywhere, no matter what. Right, like I just pray I get past the lady's tea and not be embarrassed. But it's really good to know that should I actually ever hit one appropriately, it will go farther because it's been roughed up. And so do we. We just go farther when we've been roughed up a bit. Third thing Abraham shows us about how to rise above our circumstances is to follow God's plan, not ours. Do things God's way, not our way. Let me tell you what I mean. God promised Abraham that he would be father of a great nation, right? But when he was near 100 and his wife was Sarah was only nine, was 90, only 90. When he, let me rephrase that. When he was 100 and his wife Sarah was 90, they still didn't have any kids. So they decided to help God out. Ever do that? Ever decide to just help, give God a helping hand? So they decided to fix the thing themselves. So Sarah said to Abraham, why don't you sleep with my servant Hagar and have a kid with her and I'll call it mine? Yeah, that'll work. That's not going to cause any problems at all, right? So Hagar gets pregnant, has a son named Ishmael, but Sarah gets jealous. Go figure. And constantly fights with Hagar, Right? I mean, can you imagine what Abraham's life at this point must have been like, right? There's Sarah, there's Hagar, they're fighting. I mean, it just must have been awful. Eventually, well, eventually Sarah goes on to have a child of her own, Isaac, the child that God did promise. But then once she had her own kid, she gets upset and she banishes Hagar and Ishmael to the desert. And God intervenes and provides and takes care for both of them. Ishmael goes on to become the father of the Arabs and the Muslims. Isaac becomes the father of the Jews. And those two groups of people have been fighting for 4,000 years. Whenever we're watching the evening news and we see some story of conflict in the Middle East, my wife will always say, that darned Abraham. It's all his fault. Couldn't do things God's way. Had to do it on his own, right? When we do things our way, we make a mess. When we try to deal with our loneliness through pornography or unhealthy relationships, when we try to deal with our fears about money by hoarding it instead of giving some away, as God says to do, when we try to deal with a broken relationship by manipulating the other person or punishing them instead of seeking reconciliation, we create a mess when we do it our way. When I was in college, I was worried that I would never find a wife. It's just something I could not trust God with. And I wanted someone, I had a very clear criteria, I wanted someone who was good-looking, smart, and Christian, unfortunately, in that order. Well, I finally managed to convince a woman who fit that description to date me. Now, she broke up with me three different times. That should have been a clue, right? But I still went ahead and asked her to marry me. Then she couldn't decide what to say for four months, clue number two, right? 
But I would send her literally, it was so weird, I would send her these five-page, single-space, ten-point font letters arguing why she should marry me. Very romantic, right? <laughs> Finally, out of sheer fatigue, she said yes. But then I turned out to be an emotionally distant husband who was basically using her to make me feel more secure by having a wife that I thought would impress other people, which left her feeling lonely, insignificant, and used, and eventually leaving me for someone else. Okay, that was an Abraham, Sarah, Ishmael kind of a move. I didn't trust God, and I didn't do things God's way, tried to manipulate them my way, and I made a mess. Now, God redeemed it. I'm remarried. I love my wife and kids, but I will bear the scars from my divorce forever because I didn't trust God and did things my way. And when we do that, we just make a mess. I recently read about a Mensa convention a while back, and as you know, Mensa is an organization for people with IQs over 140. And some Mensa folks were in a cafe, and they discovered that their salt shaker contained pepper, and the pepper shaker contained salt. Oh, no. Clearly, this was a job for Mensa. <laughs> so they came up with a plan that involved using a napkin, a straw, and an empty saucer to swap the contents of the bottles. So they called the waitress over to impress her with the genius of their solution, and when they explained the problem, she said, oh, I'm sorry, unscrewed the bottle caps and just switched them. <laughs> so good to be in Mensa, right? Okay, we're like those Mensa folk. We're just sure our way is better. But it's usually more complicated, and it usually makes a mess. To rise above our problems, act on God's promises and see that they're real. Get real and know that you're going to have them. Do things his way, not ours. Fourth thing that Abraham shows us about how to rise above our problems and thrive is to trust that the Father is good no matter what your circumstances are telling you. Best example of this is in Genesis 22, where God says to Abraham, one of the most shocking lines of the Bible, take your son, your only son Isaac, and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Whoa. This is one of those stories that non-Christians point to and say, see how terrible your God is. Now that misses the whole point of the story. The point of the story is that the end, God stops Abraham from doing it and provides a ram as a substitute instead. The point of the story is that God is good and loving and will not let Abraham do it. Now, to fully understand that, you've got to understand Abraham's culture at the time. You see, every other religion in Abraham's culture did practice child sacrifice. Every other god in Abraham's culture did demand a child sacrifice from their followers. Right? So Abraham would just expect this. Yeah, okay, I knew it was coming. But the point of this story is that, that the God of Abraham is different than those gods. He's going to stop Abraham from doing it. In fact, one of the things God says over and over again is he hates child sacrifice, and it must stop. So in this story, what God is saying is, in Abraham, I know you think I'm like those other gods, but I'm going to show you in a way you'll never forget, that you can't forget, that I am a God of love. And you can see that in how the story ends, which clearly foreshadows Jesus. At the end of the story, God provides a ram to substitute for Isaac. Jesus is called the Lamb of God who substitutes in our place to take the penalty for our sins. The ram is caught in a thicket of thorns. Jesus wears a crown of thorns. Isaac carries the wood on his back. Jesus carries the cross on his back. The ram is sacrificed on Mount Moriah, which becomes Jerusalem. Jesus is crucified in Jerusalem. This is not English major hard. Okay, It is clearly foreshadowing Jesus. 
And what God is saying to Abraham is, you do not, I am not like those other gods. I am always good. And you do not have to sacrifice. You do not have to perform to earn my love. I love you unconditionally. And to prove it, I will sacrifice myself. What you should not do, I will do for you. And that's the God that Abraham has faith in, that he is good no matter what circumstances appear to say. In the story, as they're going up the mountain, Abraham says to his servants, the boy, Isaac, and I will go worship on the mountain, then we will come back. He says, we. In other words, Abraham has faith that in spite of all appearances, God is good and is going to do good things for him. He doesn't know how. Maybe he won't have to go through with it. Maybe God will raise Isaac from the dead. But Abraham has faith that in spite of how hard things seem, God is good and somehow, someway, someday, God is going to give him good things. Which he does not only by giving him Isaac back, but showing him just how much he is a God of love. Which brings me to my last point. When we face problems and difficulties, we can rise above them and thrive by remembering this, that God is doing something bigger in our lives than we can often perceive in the moment. Abraham has a hard life in a lot of ways. Right? He faces famine, infertility, all kinds of things. And yet, God was doing something much bigger than Abraham could see at the time. I mean, Abraham gets to see God do this amazing miracle that when he's 100 and his wife is 90, they have a baby, which, as I've said before, probably sounds awful to most of us, but it is a pretty amazing miracle. you got to admit that, right? I mean, at first they didn't even believe it, right? When God said it was going to happen, they both laughed. And you can kind of understand why they would laugh, right? I mean, God tells them they're going to have a baby at 90 years old when Medicare is going to have to pay for it, right? And they both laugh, right? And you can see why. That there they'd be, all three of them eating mashed vegetables because there wouldn't be a tooth in the whole family. (laughs) But when their son was born, they named him Isaac, which means he laughs. As a reminder that they laughed at God's miracle, but he gave it to them anyway and put a smile on their face. Not only that, but Abraham gets to change all of history. He's the founder of monotheism, and from, and from him comes the nation of Israel. From Israel comes Jesus, who saves the whole world from our sins. Yes, Abraham had problems, but God was doing something much bigger with his life than he could perceive at the time. God was changing the world, even if Abraham couldn't see it in the moment. Some of you may have heard me tell this before, but when our daughter was a baby, whenever we would give her a bath, she would just scream and holler bloody murder. I mean, just like scream. We'd just keep bathing her, you know. And she would look at us with these pleading eyes as if she were having some kind of existential crisis. You know, as if she were thinking, if they hear me crying, why don't they make it stop, right? How can loving parents let bad things happen to good babies? You know, maybe parents don't exist, right? If parents existed, would this be happening to me, right? (laughs) Choir liked it anyway. Now, from her perspective, we were absolutely indifferent to her pain. But from our perspective, we were just trying to make her clean. We were doing something she didn't understand. When we face difficulties, it may seem that God's not paying attention, but maybe he's doing something bigger with our lives than we can see in the moment. The first year as a college pastor in California, the first retreat I did for the students was a rock climbing trip. And the group I inherited was very, very small at the time, and I really wanted it to grow to please my bosses, and they wanted it to grow, so I wanted it to grow to show them that they hired the right guy. 
My staff and I felt like a rock climbing trip would be a great way to start it because they had to work together. They would build community, right? So we planned it for early October so the weather would be good. Well, it was the worst El Nino year on record. So the first day of the trip, it was just pouring down a very cold rain, which meant worse, it was snowing in the mountains where we were going. Okay, it never rains the first weekend in October in the Bay Area. I mean, you would have to go back decades in the Almanac to find rain on the first weekend in October, let alone snow. I mean, it was just unheard of, right? So I was angry. I remember saying to my wife, this retreat is crucial to helping this group grow, and my bosses are watching, and they want to see growth, and now I'm going to have a bunch of wet, cold students huddled in tents, getting bored and grumpy, and the few students we have are just going to leave anyway, and my career is over. Why isn't God cooperating with me? Kind of a backward sentence, if you think about it. <laughs> my wife, who is the sole source of sanity in our home, reminded me that God probably hadn't altered global climate patterns just to frustrate me. <laughs> and I told her that I had been to seminary and that theologically she was wrong. <laughs> well, the whole day I kept praying, Lord, make it stop, make it stop. But when we got to the rock climbing spot, just covered with snow, and the students started to kind of complain, you know, why'd you bring us here? This group is lame, I hate this trip, all that kind of stuff. And I just kind of watched my career vanish from my eyes. Finally, one of my staff said, well, how about instead of asking God to make it all stop, how about instead we ask God, what are you doing, God, so that we can get on board with what he's doing instead of trying to wrestle him into our plans? And I said, I was just about to say that. <laughs> so we prayed, and after we did, we got an idea. We put the students together in a group, and we had them do some group activities, which included clearing the snow from the campsite. And they just had a blast. They started throwing snowballs. Some of them from the south had rarely seen snow, so they were really excited. And working together forged some great bonds. Then the sun came out, melted enough of the snow so that we could rock climb anyway, and the snow just made it more beautiful. But more than that, working together forged, under adverse circumstances, forged deeper bonds of community than would have happened if everything had been perfect. And the students talked about the great snow rock climbing retreat for the rest of the year. Now, when I stopped expecting God to give me a problem-free life, when I stopped trying to do things my way and instead tried to figure out what he was doing and get on board with that, when I acted on God's promises that he was actually doing something and put the students into groups and got them working, I saw that God was doing something bigger than just trying to thwart my career, right? Or even just make a great retreat. He was creating bonds of community that actually in that group lasted for years to come. And we all experienced the blessing. And it started that retreat. You see, the Father always intends good things for us, even when our life is hard. And the more we trust that, the more we're going to have joy. Even when our life is hard, even when we mess up, even when we mess up, he intends good things for us. This is one of the things I love about Abraham. He's not perfect. He doesn't have a perfect life. And boy, howdy, does he mess up. I think there's this one spot, it's unbelievable. He lies to the king of Egypt and says that Sarah is his sister instead of his wife, the result of which is the king gives Abraham a whole lot of money in exchange for Sarah, and he puts Sarah in the king's harem. Nice, right? And it's interesting, the Quran, which also talks about Abraham, leaves out a lot of the places where Abraham messes up to make him look more perfect. I like the Bible's version better. For one, which seems like more accurate history to you, a perfect man with no problems or a man who messes up and has difficulties. But not only that, the Bible's version is more comforting because I'm a guy who messes up. 
and I have all kinds of problems and trials. So I trust the God that is revealed in Jesus because that God is not so nervous with his truth that he has to entrust it in the hands of perfect people. Instead, he entrusts his truth to imperfect people like Abraham or like you or like me because Jesus works even when we don't. And what it shows us is that life is not nearly as fragile as we think it is because our Father is good and he loves us even when we have problems, even when we mess up. There's a YouTube video that's gone viral in the last couple of weeks, some of you may have seen it, of a father who takes his little girl to a Phillies game. And this dad has waited his whole life to catch a foul ball. Watch what happens. He does go after him there. And delivers a fastball. A shot to the upper deck. Caught by that fan right there. Nice grab. <laughs> oh, wow. Whoa, oh. There it goes. <laughs> now, what do you think he says at this moment, right? I've waited my whole life to catch a foul ball, and you throw it away, you little turkey? Watch. <laughs> well, she's only doing what she sees them do all yeah. the time, and that is to throw the ball back on the field. But you know when that happens, the parent is never able to catch them before no. they end up. Not bad for a Phillies fan. <laughs> you know that's us? We mess up. We make mistakes. We have all kinds of problems, suffering, and trials, but our Father loves us. And he reaches out to hold on to us, and his love makes us strong. So what mistakes have you made? What balls have you thrown away in your life? What suffering do you face? Turn to your Father who loves you in prayer. Do what he says to do in Scripture. Don't take matters into your own hands. And trust that he intends good things for you, no matter what. And you will rise above your circumstances and thrive in his joy. That's his promise. Life is not nearly as fragile as we think it is when Jesus is on our side. So Jesus, walk alongside of us even when we mess up, and we do, even when we have problems, because we do. Thank you that you do not need perfect problem-free people. You just need willing people whose hearts are open to you, and you can do all things. Help us to trust that this week. We pray this in your name. Amen.